Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. Today we're going to jump into, we're going to jump back into our Matthew series. Last week we had a special treat from Pastor Doug Gardner uh, in Romans. So let's um, reorient ourselves back to our Matthew series on uh, Follow Me, uh, learning to live like Jesus. Before we get into Matthew 5, which I get to cover today, um, let's, let's go back a little bit. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 4, verse 23. So I believe if you need to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, it's going to be page 1029. Um, I don't know if you guys have used the, the version app. I know that we've uh, pointed people towards that. We do have the series in there where you can add your own notes. You can save them. Uh, it's private, so if you want to say certain things uh, in there, you can just keep it to yourself. Um, but it is very helpful. It's something you can kind of go back to. So for those of you that do take advantage of things like that, please, please do so. But let's look at Matthew 4.23. And then we're going to read all the way through Matthew 5.12. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we can view this, uh, the gospel according to Matthew, as, as sort of an apologetic. And he's writing this apologetic and he's making an argument that Jesus was the true Messiah. He's the king. He's the coming king that has been proclaimed. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout their traditions, throughout the testimonies that many have shared and the stories that they've passed down from generation to generation... Matthew is setting out an argument that this is the guy. 
So because of all this, Matthew starts with connecting Jesus to the people and stories found throughout the Old Testament. Now keep in mind, we have the completed Old Testament here with us today, but back then it wasn't so, wasn't so simple uh, as far as putting everything together. But Matthew was off to, the, uh, off to the, fulfill, the fulfilled prophecy races like a thoroughbred. So he sprints through the first three chapters by connecting several prophetic dots. So he shows us that the genealogy that he lays out connects Jesus to the Davidic line. It connects Jesus to Abraham. He also talks about Christ's birth, how miraculous it was, the location where it was, how people from other nations would come to see him and to appreciate uh, his birth. And speaking of Jewish tradition, a very interesting study uh, for, for us or for you to do at some point would be to, to compare Moses to Jesus. Moses was very important, if not the most important teacher that the Jews considered. We see this throughout the gospel that Jesus takes everything that, that Moses had taught and he makes it better. He, he takes it to another level. For example, uh, Moses delivered the Israelites from, from Egypt, from their slavery. But Jesus permanently freed all from spiritual slavery. Moses taught about moral perfection through the law. Jesus lived it. Moses asked for forgiveness for the people's sins. Jesus achieved forgiveness for the people's sins. Jesus is a new and better Moses. Now, before we dive into the passage, I just want to take a moment and do a little bit of a review from chapters 3 and 4 so we know the context of where we are. And, and I've titled this part, The Classroom is Prepped. Okay, so we're, the teacher is prepping the classroom here. All right, in chapter 3, we heard about Jesus' herald, John the Baptist, right? Remember John? Not that John, John the Baptist. Uh, so he proclaimed that the Messiah was coming, and he encouraged his audience to leave and cleave himself and cleave toward that Messiah. And he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. What an awesome, awesome line. And then in chapter 4, we witness Jesus' demonstration of his authority over the physical destruction that sin has brought into this created world. He performs miracles he heals the sick. He, he's doing things that have never been seen by, by these people that are following him. And the word of what he was doing spread so far and wide that crowds were just following him. Before sin entered the world, there was no pain, no Achilles tendon ruptures, no disease, no cancer, no decay. Jesus also demonstrated his power over the spiritual realm by commanding demons to flee and living a life completely free of sin. He is amazing. But here in chapter 5, we see Jesus, Jesus step into the main role of, of Matthew's narrative. It's in the midst of this chaos and, and, and these crowds following that we see Jesus hit pause on all those activities um, and, he, and he walks away from this general public and he makes a transition into a very focused discourse that is meant only for a select few. So he goes from this broad demonstration of who he is and what he can do and he narrows it down to this 
this teaching that we have here, starting in Matthew 5, for only a select few. So they moved from the hustle and bustle of the town into the hill country for a little more privacy. And since a classroom is usually prepped for students, let's take a look at who those students are. So I've titled this, The Students Arrive. The Students Arrive. Let's look back at uh, Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Matthew 5, 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So we see the audience narrow. And this is the first time that we actually see this word for disciples in Matthew. In a broad understanding, this is referring to anyone that Jesus has called to follow him up to this point. More than likely, it's not everyone that was in the crowd. It could have been only a select few. So far, we've only, uh, throughout Matthew, we have only been named four of the disciples. Uh, We have seen uh, Simon Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and his brother John, who are the sons of Zebedee. So I, I do believe at least a remnant of the crowd was listening, because it does tell us all who followed him, uh, meaning all who have followed what he is saying, and they've in some way made a commitment to what he is saying. Uh, but, but later on in Matthew 7, 28 through 29, Uh, the direct recipients of what Jesus is about to teach was for anyone he had called to follow him. So I do believe that that applies to this this teaching moment also. The description of Jesus sitting as the disciples gathered certainly paints a picture of like a rabbinic teaching. For us, when we think of teachers and students or a classroom setting, uh, we kind of picture this, where, um, you know, the teacher or the one who has the authority to give the presentation is up front, maybe behind a pulpit or a lectern, and and they're the ones communicating to everyone else that is out there uh, seated. But for them at this point, what they would do is the teacher who had the authority to teach would be the one seated, uh, and he is proclaiming everything to uh, his students. So we know that students can't learn without a teacher, so let's take a look at how the teacher teaches how the teacher teaches, and that's in uh, 5, 3 through 12, the rest of our passage. So Matthew records Jesus' teaching in a short, in nine short, succinct statements, um, and they were meant to be remembered and possibly recited. So they're they're short one-liners that hopefully his followers and those who are listening uh, can, can, can retain that and take it with them. Hopefully we can do the same. So as a follower of Christ... And a child of God and a member of his kingdom, he offers encouragement to you too, including in what he said to this original audience. One question that most everyone wants to to answer regarding these is, when do we receive this promise? Save a series of encouragements and statements and and tacked onto those are promises, things that are supposed to come at some point. So our our nature is to go, okay, when do I get those things? You know, we kind of gloss over the the hard part, and we're like, okay, give me the gift. Um, At least kids do that, Um, and we do as adults sometimes. So uh, when you look at this, you see the present tense is used in in verse 3 and in verse 10, and the others have a future tense. So saying there is, so that's something that is happening right now, going to, or the tense of shall, or there shall be. So it actually covers both here and then, both now 
and then. And Francis, in his uh, uh, New International Commentary on the New Testament, uh, he says, the advantages of being God's people can then be expected to accrue already in this life. So you start to earn or see the results of those things now, even though the full consummation of their blessedness remains for the future. So in some of these things, we see the results. We, we can see um, a, a foretaste or we can experience a foretaste of what the kingdom of God, which means the reign and the rule of God. We can see and feel what that's like, but we will not fully comprehend or understand it until he is ruling and reigning with us forever and ever. So let's take a look at those statements. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is this talking about? When we think of poor, we think of, you know, you're missing something, you don't have enough. So is it talking about, you know, someone who's been shortchanged in the, the area of, of spirit? Um, but... But what it's really talking about, if you take a look throughout the Old Testament, this phrase is speaking of those that recognize their need for God. So on a spiritual level, if at some point you can say, you know, I can't do this, um, you look at God's requirement for sacrifice in the Old Testament. You need a sacrifice to cover the sins of the people or, or yourself or your family. You need something beyond yourself if you have recognized that, I would argue that you understand that you are poor in spirit. You need something outside of you to fulfill what is lacking within you spiritually. Those, those that are in this, this state, they have come to understand that they have a God-shaped vacuum and it needs to be filled. It's not someone that arrogantly goes through life and says, I got this. Okay, Someone who says, I don't need God. I made myself. I made my life. I don't need any help. So those that seek God will enjoy the benefits and blessing of God's rule over their soul. This reminds me, as, as I was reading, reading this, it reminded me of the lyrics from What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what a peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He's, he was meant to carry those burdens. By acknowledging that, we can be blessed in the current experience of our kingdom of heaven. Looking at verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When looking at other usages of this word, like in Isaiah 61, 2 through 3, we see that mourn isn't to be read like uh, what we would today. So when I, when I read mourn, when I think of that, I think of somebody like in bereavement. They're mourning. They're mourning something. But it's more like someone... Um, who, who understands that they're in an um, intolerable situation or, or a wretched situation, it's, it's interesting to note that there is no time frame given for this comfort. Um, it's not like, uh, blessed are those who, who mourn for a week, because in two weeks, peace is coming, you know? Um, so there is no time frame given there, but, but we do know that this world 
that has been decaying since sin entered it, we know that there is a new earth coming in the future. And we see Jesus by faith now, but one day we will see him with our very own eyes if we've been united with him. And we look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, while when you look at poor in spirit, in uh, 3, it's, you know, it speaks to like the spiritual condition. Um, here, in, here in verse 5, I think this is speaking more toward uh, a person's relational status with God. Okay, the, the relationship there. So when, look, when looking at other usages uh, of this in, in Scripture, it carries the meaning of one who waits on the Lord. And it's often used in contrast with the wicked. So someone who, who is reliant and waiting upon the Lord and trusting in his promises compared to someone who is just completely abstained to him. Blessed are the meek, and they will inherit the earth. The promise of inheriting the earth seems out of place here. But this is the language that the Jewish people used, and they had been hearing for centuries. So they were very, very focused on inheriting the land, inheriting a promise. Uh, even, even these disciples that were here at this time, when they were thinking of a king, a lot of them, if not all of them, were thinking of someone who would physically come to this earth and rule and reign over the government. So they're thinking, okay, let's, let's set up this kingdom, this physical kingdom here on this earth. And you're the guy who's going to do that, so let's follow this, this guy. So it seems a little out of place, but that is what they were thinking. That is what they were used to. So um, now that we have this completed canon, we have the entirety of Scripture, uh, we now know that this is not referring to a promised physical land, but a land where we will live with God forever. That it's part of that already but not yet tension that we see throughout Scripture. In 5.6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When I see this, this word righteousness, um, you, can, you can go a couple ways. You can think of God's righteousness, like uh, God is just. Or you can think of our righteousness as far as uh, trying to do right things, our right conduct. Now, given Matthew's other usages of the word, uh, it's likely better understood that he's talking about our right conduct, the, the, the way we act. So therefore, blessed are those who say and do like Jesus did, like in John 4, where Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So it's focused on accomplishing and being obedient to God's commands. Not my will be done, but his. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after doing God's will, not their will. For they shall be satisfied. If you are seeking and searching for any other kind of accomplishment, any other kind of identity, you will not be satisfied. I know that as a young person, it's easy to look out at your non-believing friends and classmates and even think, man, they have all the fun. I got all these rules and things that I have to follow and I have to do. Why can't I have fun like them? Or even as adults, it's easy to look at your non-believing coworkers and think, man, they get all the breaks. 
all the promotions, all the deals. But Christian, please know that although these people may appear to be satisfied with their circumstances, with their surroundings, with what they have right now, they will never find satisfaction beyond this life. And that's a sobering thought. You have the promise of life eternal if you are a child of God. You can find satisfaction in knowing that you were fearfully, wonderfully, and intentionally made the way you are. Your identity needs to be found in Christ, your Savior. He wants you. He loves you. And you are precious to him. And while other humans will let you down, disappoint you, and even break your heart at times, he will never leave you nor forsake you. You are blessed. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, mercy and forgiveness are often used and in a reciprocal fashion. So, so giving mercy, receiving forgiveness back throughout the Gospel of Matthew and, and even throughout the New Testament. Now, the emphasis of showing mercy here is meant to be applied as a general attitude to have. Your attitude ought to be characterized as someone that strives to see things from someone else's perspective. Not necessarily accepting their beliefs or accepting their feelings, but just trying to view it from their point of view, their perspective, having empathy if you can. So don't gloat when anyone else is found to be wrong. Don't take offense so quickly when someone else has wronged you. Do your kids fear coming to you with a problem when they have a problem? Can they approach you? Are you merciful to them? Does your spouse feel the freedom to confess things to you? Or do they feel like they need to hide things because you do not demonstrate mercy to them? Mercy doesn't seek revenge. Mercy treats others as God treats others. There's a reason that mercy is often closely related to forgiveness throughout Scripture. Are you a merciful person? Because if you are a child of God, you have been forgiven. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, for me, this one was tougher. Um, just trying to figure out what, what's pure in heart. You can't quite see if it's dirty. I am in my flesh as long as I'm here on this earth and not in heaven, so it, it kind of is dirty, but I know I have forgiveness from Jesus. Um, so just, just struggling through this, it, it kind of sounds like a phrase from a Disney cartoon. Blessed are the pure in heart. Um, maybe that's because I've watched Frozen too many times with my kids, but um, I do think this phrase comes to life when you look at it through the eyes of the original audience, so the, the followers that were sitting there and their backgrounds that they have. Jewish worship was heavily focused on like ceremonial purity, okay? So when you see pure of heart, uh, their sacrifices, everything about that system, the priests, they were very focused on purity, In fact, later on in Matthew 23, Jesus will absolutely roast the scribes and Pharisees for their efforts to clean their outward appearance 
but leave their inward heart as dirty as it can be. So here Jesus, I believe Jesus is talking about their typical tradition and effort to maintain an outward purity and revealing that um, it's, it's really more concerned about what's going on inside and the purity of their heart. We know that that only comes as a result of conversion. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's interesting how the statement takes, um, it takes things beyond just experiencing peace or being peaceful. It doesn't say, uh, blessed are those that, it, that enjoy peace. It doesn't say, um, blessed are those who are at peace. It says, blessed are those, blessed are the peacemakers. So we are actually challenged to make peace. We, the church especially, ought to be characterized by reconciliation and unification. This doesn't mean that we are to avoid any and all conflict. Okay? We certainly have a responsibility to, to be just in our actions and words and to stand for what is right, to stand for the things that the Bible says we ought to stand for even if it hurts other people's feelings. We are in error when, when we say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord didn't really say that. So on an accountability level, we have to be in the word. We have to know what God says in his word. Wouldn't it be amazing if non-believers went around and referred to us as a child of God? So you look at that, that verse again, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And think about that. What if you heard, as you, as you went about, as we went about, as we, this church, in this local community, went about in the community, if we heard people saying and whispering, there goes one of God's children. His kids are making peace again. Why don't you go ask one of God's children? They would know how to handle this. Ten. Five ten. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One theme that these Beatitudes demonstrate is that you cannot live the way God commands alone. A lot, if you look back through these Beatitudes, a lot of them, if not all of them, have to do with community living. You can't isolate. As a child of God, you are not to live alone by yourself, trying to figure it out on your own. We are among the people. We are in the world, but not of it. This involvement and interactions with others will sometimes result in less than favorable results. There's your disclaimer. <laughs> of course, you already know that. I do believe the word persecuted is thrown around a lot, uh, probably more than it should be. And we don't fully understand what being persecuted really is. I do fear that one day um, we, if not our kids, and that's probably what I'm more afraid of, our kids we'll come to know what it's like to truly, truly be persecuted for God's sake. But that time did come for this original audience, though. And it, it hit me as I was reading this. They were persecuted. 
And Jesus, think of this, Jesus, being Jesus, knew this. He knew the future. He knew what they were going to experience. He knew how every single one of them were going to die and why they were. And knowing this, he's telling them right here, you will be blessed. When you look at 11 and 12, I think 11 and 12 is kind of um, an expansion of 10. So he kind of, he digs a little deeper into it. I believe that Jesus is honing in specifically to the listeners in front of him. Almost like a teacher, uh, you know, a, a teacher addressing an entire class. Again, Jesus was talking to his, his followers, those that were saying they were committed to his teaching. Hey, we want to follow you. We want to do what you're talking about. And he's talking to everyone. And then all of a sudden here, as, as he hits this point of persecution, he then, instead of talking to the entire class, he really hones in on possibly the four that we have named. Those four, the two sets of brothers, and he tells them, Blessed are you when others revalue and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I'm telling you, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's important to point out that Jesus isn't saving the blessing. He's not saying that the blessing comes in the persecution itself. He's not saying, you know, if you really want to follow me, go out there and see how much persecution you can bring into your own life. He's just saying it's it's going to happen. It's a part of it because of me, because of who I am, because of my gospel. If you truly follow me, this is what you're going to experience but that the reward will be reaped in heaven itself. Patience is certainly not a characteristic of our society, especially today. As soon as that have it your way right away came, man, mainstream, it's just, it's everywhere now. But this reward that is promised is certainly worth the wait. In his book, The Days of His Flesh, the author, uh, David Smith, says, he told them what what must be their lot as his apostles, as though challenging their courage to accept it. He would have them at the outset clearly understand the conditions of their ministry, lest they should embark upon it in ignorance and abandon it in disappointment. You know they face disappointment. Just think of how it was when Christ actually died and they thought, this was the king, this is our kingdom, here we go, and all of a sudden he is gone. But we know that's not the end. Now every teacher is hoping that what is taught is eventually caught. So the next point I bring up is that the lesson is learned. And this is where I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We've got a couple minutes left. We'll move through the setting of this passage into the, into the room. So... Um, Let's bring it down to to reality here right now. So whether or not the lesson truly is learned, I believe, is up to you. Now, I believe our human nature is to see a list like this. When we we read through these Beatitudes, our natural inkling is to turn it into a to-do list. 
Something that we can just check off. Figure out where we're at. What's our status? Okay, how do I, how do I get these rewards? It becomes a series of accomplishments only to get extremely frustrated when, when life happens. Or uh, you find yourself thinking, if only they would or wouldn't do this or that, I could do this. I could be merciful if they weren't such an idiot. And, and we, we look at his teachings. But what we need to do is we need to realize th- through this discourse, we see that life in God's kingdom is not popular. It, if it was a to-do list, we couldn't check it off. We could not. As a follower of Christ, as his disciple, you are called to obedience, though. We must pursue righteousness. We must show mercy. We must take peace. We must make peace and obedience. Some of us may even see persecution. The true beauty of this message is that Jesus gives to those disciples then and to us disciples now an example, a perfect example of life in God's kingdom. Now, in the beginning, God created. He created the earth. He created mankind. He called all that he had made good. He gave mankind, specifically Adam and Eve, all the earth and everything in it to maintain and enjoy, with one exception. God told Adam to never partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because it would end his physical life. Adam and Eve gave in to Satan's temptation to eat that fruit, and sin entered the world that God had created. Sin is anything that misses God's mark, his mark of obedience and holiness. Basically, we all have sinned. Through Adam and Eve's sin, the entire human race was separated from God spiritually and relationally. Ephesians 2.4 tells us, But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he provided a way to be united with him again. Jesus was that way. In order for humankind to be reconciled with the creator, there needed to be a sacrifice. Since a perfect and holy God can only commune with a perfect and holy people, that sacrifice itself needed to be perfect. That perfect life came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived a life without sin, and willingly gave his life to be that sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the wrath of God for my sin, for your sin upon himself. He made a way. But the story of redemption doesn't end there. His actions, what he did on the cross, demands a response from you. It it demands a response from me. So how do you respond to his death? Do Do you believe it's just an inspiring and nice story? Do you believe that it happened? Do you trust that his death is once and for all sacrifice that grants you access to a relationship with God, your creator? Have you been united with Christ? If you have placed your trust in his sacrifice and you've been united with him, this passage offers tremendous encouragement in this life we live prior to the life we have with him forever. 
So in conclusion, Jesus, think about this. All, all of these blessed, if you th- do this, if you experience this, all of those things Jesus himself embodies in his life. This entire section can be summed up with, blessed are those that know Jesus. Stop searching for comfort, satisfaction, mercy, significance in things of this world within yourself. Disney's challenge to follow your heart will never, ever bring you true joy. That's why I want to encourage you to walk away from this passage knowing that he is greater than me. He is greater than me in every way. He is greater than you in every way. He has accomplished anything that you will ever have to accomplish in order to have that relationship restored with him. As you pursue righteousness, remember, this doesn't let us off the hook for how we need to live our life here in this time. But as you pursue righteousness, as you strive to show mercy, as you are trying to make peace with others, and as you are being, remember that he is greater than me. He's gone before you. He has completed the race before you. He has already been to the finish line, and he is there cheering you on as you make your way to him. Please, please remember in all circumstances, in all the failures that you experience, in all the failures that others give to you, and the efforts that you put in, he is greater than me. Let's pray.